folks. Good to see y'all. Great, thank you, and I need to turn it on. Just keen not to do that before I went to the toilet before. <laughs> Are we on, Marty? Thank you, Paul. Listen, uh, good to see you all. Uh, I think uh, Grace is a, a good name for a community that would let someone stand up at front uh, when they haven't been around very much of late. Genuinely. <laughs> Grace uh, is a good name, and, and I, think, I think on that point, uh, can I also, um, and I think I probably speak on behalf of a few here, although I haven't asked anyone else whether I can speak on their behalf, um, but I think at this moment it would be appropriate for me anyway to say a huge thank you uh, to those folks involved in the technical end of, of church. Um, having not been around for a considerable amount of time, I have remained feeling deeply connected and uh, I mean from the bottom of my heart, a big, big thank you to those folks who have. Thanks. I wonder, have any of you ever had a go at one of these things? Yeah, no? Know what it is? Pop-up tent? They're easy put up, aren't they? Yeah? Not so fun at the other end when you try to put them away. Have you had that experience? Yeah, had a few of those in my time. Although, I have to confess, this may sound vain or arrogant. I don't have that problem anymore. Um, because these sorts of things, they're tough, they're challenging. But when you discover the knack of how you twist them, you don't tend to forget. And they tend to go away reasonably easily from that point forward. I find putting up children's travel cots, something similar. Yeah, there's, there's, a, there's an art to those. Uh, you need to discover the knack. Wouldn't it be great if faith and spirituality and this God business was the same, wouldn't it? Wouldn't it be great if you just needed to discover the knack and then it all falls into place? But it ain't like that. Sure it's not. Uh, I've been doing faith for for some 35 years now. And and again, I can't speak for anyone else. But some 35 years has told me that there ain't a knack to this sort of stuff. This stuff of thinking about God or or trying to follow God is challenging, isn't it? It's tough. It's tough at a head level. Who is God? What's he like? What does he think of the world? How does he interact with the world? What's he think of me? I don't have to put too fancy a word on it. Real cognitive challenges. Challenges I see my young kids emerging. That's some of the questions they ask at the minute. And they go, good question. I don't really know the answer. Thinking about God at a cognitive level, it's really tough. Brian McLaren, I've shared this before um, at different moments, but it, it just it captures what I think I'm getting at. When we do theology, we are clay pots pondering the potter. Kids pondering their father, ants discussing the elephant. At some level of profundity and accuracy... We are bound to be inadequate or incomplete all of the time. And almost anything we say or think, considering our human limitations, including including language and God's infinite greatness, thus the noblest and loftiest thing we can do, which is to consider our Creator, always should humble us 
even as it ennobles us. I can't speak for you, but I've certainly felt humbled when I go to think about God. We're dealing with mystery. We're dealing with infinite greatness. You know, that fact isn't helped, I, I think, by some of the the images, dominant images that sometimes can be handed down to us um, that, that are that quite frankly images that can be unhelpful, that, 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 that compound these issues that we sometimes deal with. But you know what? I, I think even if you get your head to a sensible place of accepting mystery, accepting that you're never going to quite get your head fully around God and you, you, you lean on some of the helpful images that we have, isn't sometimes problem not a head issue but a heart issue? Yeah, you might have got the place of the head, but it's a, it's a hard issue where when you come to God, it's, it's feelings of, of inadequacy, feelings potentially of, of shame, maybe feelings of, of disappointment with God, maybe feelings of anger, or, or maybe it's even, it's maybe even a numbness of heart. You know, that, that sense of aloofness when it comes to God. Are, are, are these things that make this thinking about God and pursuing, and as Paul said this morning, isn't it a desire in all our hearts that we want to meet with God, but don't we constantly get hit with these cognitive and heart obstacles? Whether you've been doing it for a year or whether you've been doing it for 35 years or longer, it's, it, it is the stuff of challenge and there ain't no knack to it. That's uplifting, isn't it, to start What's the Bible say we do about this? Doesn't the Bible make consistently clear? In fact, I think many of us here would argue that it's the point of the Bible. Doesn't the Bible at these points point us to Jesus? And I know in this context that sounds a bit cliche <laughs> to say that, but isn't literally, isn't that what the Bible does? And isn't that why as a church we're on a series at the minute exploring Jesus? Because Jesus says, if we could flick forward, thanks Warren. I love these, these statements here in Colossians 1. Because Jesus is the image of the invisible God. When we're struggling to get our heads around God, the Bible says, look at Jesus. It says in verse 9, for God was pleased of all his fullness dwell. And Amali shared this last week. We're to look to Jesus, folks, when we're dealing with these head issues. And there is maybe a wee bit of my experience here that, that when we get our head on Jesus, that some of the hard issues become easier to deal with as well. And that's why this morning, it's why as part of the series, we're going to take a wee bit further time to Jesus. Just before we do that, a quote from Brandon Manning, because he, he kind of says, Jesus alone reveals who God is. He is our source of information about divinity. We cannot deduce anything about Jesus from what we think and we know about God. We're thinking about that a wee bit. However, we must deduce everything about God from what we know about Jesus. This implies that all our prevailing images and understanding of God must crumble in the earthquake, in the earthquake of Jesus' self-disclosure. So what do we need to do this morning? Let's spend some time with Jesus and thinking about Jesus because it might help us deal with some of the other obstacles. We're going to read uh, from John 11, uh, starting at, at, at John uh, eleven seventeen. 17. Uh, Jesus has been informed from afar that his good friend Lazarus 
has passed away. And, and we're reading as Jesus uh, comes to the home uh, where Lazarus has passed away. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now, Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you're the Messiah, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. After she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house, comforting her, noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet. And said, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, See how he loved them. I wonder, did any of that story stand out to you? I would guess some of you might think, and, and particularly when you think about the series that the church is going on, might think that we're about to delve into a study of that line, I am the resurrection and the, and the life. And couldn't you? Can you spend a fair bit of time on that? You could ruminate it. Uh, a word Paul's been using of late. I was giving a hard time about that beforehand. Uh, but couldn't you ruminate on that one for a whole long time? You could. But we're not going to. What I want to think about this morning is that verse in John eleven thirty-five. You know it, don't you? Yeah. You've known it. Many of you, I'd say, from your young. And you knew it because it was one of those questions you remember asking Sunday school quizzes. Knowing that... Allowed you get up the front and maybe pull the wool out of the wee uh, saucepans. Remember those wee games you used to play? It's classic Sunday school trivia to know that John eleven thirty five is the shortest verse in the Bible. Jesus wept. But don't we do such a disservice to that verse if that's all it becomes to us? A piece of Sunday school trivia? Listen to Spurgeon on this. Shortest, shortest, shortest of verses and words. But where is there a longer one in sense? Add a word to the verse, and it would be out of place. No, let it stand in solitary sublimity, sublimity and simplicity. You may even put a note of exclamation after it, and let it stand in capitals. Jesus wept. There is infinitely more in these two words than any sermonizer 
or student of the word will ever be able to bring out of them. Even though he should apply the microscope of the most attentive consideration, Jesus wept. And it's those verses that I want to spend a wee bit of time just reflecting. As, as, as I suppose as we have these obstacles coming to God and thought and heart, I think there's a whole lot this morning that can bring some of those obstacles down when we spend t- some time reflecting on the fact that Jesus wept. What do we learn about God through these words. We learn that God values connection. We learn that God values relationship. Earlier in this passage, it said, Lord, the one you love is sick. Jesus clearly enjoyed connection and relationship with Lazarus. After he wept, what did it say in, in verse 36? The Jews who around said, see how he loved him. Jesus loved Lazarus. He had developed connection and relationship with Lazarus. And not only him. I think you can see in the whole, the whole tone of that passage is this relationship with Mary and Martha. Jesus is moved when he sees their reaction and grief. We learn through this passage that, that we have a God, folks, who believes in connection and relationship. And, and the grief that Jesus demonstrates as he weeps here is an indicator of that. I heard a lovely quote recently. It's the next one, Warren, thank you. Grief is praise because it is the natural way that love honors. What a message. Jesus missed Lazarus because he had connection and relationship with him. We learn in this this passage that we have a God who just doesn't love compassion, a God who, uh, who loved connection, but a God who is compassionate. Jesus is triggered by seeing Mary's grief. It says, when Jesus saw her weeping and those who had come with her, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. We have a God, folks, who is compassionate in the depths of his being. I love that verse in Psalm 58. Jesus embodying what we already know. You keep track of all my sorrows. You've collected all my tears in your bottle. You've recorded each one in your book. We discover that Jesus is compassionate. What else do we discover? We discover that God is moved. I fear I might delve into the They're heretical here, and I don't want to do that. And I don't know how to square it up. It is mystery. But we believe in an omnipotent God, a God who is all-powerful. We believe in a God who is omniscient, a God who uh, sees all things. We believe in the rock of ages. But we have it here, folks, in Scripture that we have a God who has moved. He is immutable. He is unchanging, unchanging. He is consistent. He is faithful. But it seems part of his consistent nature is that he leaves himself open and vulnerable to relationship with human beings. He is moved to the point of emotion. It's not, I'm told from the Greek, a, a wailing here. It's, 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 a, it's a gentle tear that rises 
from the overflow of Jesus' heart. That's what the commentator said. Someone, Meyer said, it's a delicate discrimination of expressions, unforced and true. Emotion from the heart, from the overflow of the heart. When Jesus put on our flesh, like you, Warren, he put on our feelings. So what do we, as people who seek to think about God and who seek to follow God, take out of this this morning? We have a God who values connection and relationship. And he seeks that relationship with every one of us. Never, ever forget it. Just last week, last Saturday night, I was engaging uh, in a text message back and forward with a good friend about some sport-related stuff. And out of the blue, he shared some things that indicated strongly that, uh, that he's been on a recent journey uh, in terms of a relationship with God. And uh, for me, and knowing that individual, it was a bolt out of the blue. And I, ha- I haven't even got talking to him. Um, but it was a bolt out of the blue. And we, we had a, exchanged a few conversations. And pretty much where our conversation got to is we committed to meeting up sometime soon. Because I want to hear all about it. But he, uh, in his last text, and I, 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 could, I could read it out, but I'm not. He just said this. He said, the words, follow me, will never leave me. And again, I might be reading into it more than I should, because I haven't got talking to him. But I'll bet your bottom dollar, him hearing those words and knowing that God wants to connect them, will change his life forever. Will change the life of his family and his kids forever. And again, given some of the things, his sports world is already being changed forever. It's class. He's discovered that it's a God who values connection and relationship. Hear that this morning, folks. We have a God who, who is compassionate. And hear that. You know those verses from Hebrews 4? We do not have a God who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. And I don't want to state the griefs of weakness this morning. That's not. But we have, a, we have a God who is sympathetic and compassionate. And hear that, folks. Right from the start, then I say, we, we, we bring down so many unhelpful images and metaphors of God. Whatever they are, allow them to be overruled by that revelation that we get in Jesus, that God is compassionate. And wherever you are, whatever the circumstance or situations are here, here this morning, that God is compassionate. If you're at home this morning and you haven't been at church and there are legitimate and illegitimate reasons, and I've been in both, here clearly, we have a God who's compassionate and merciful and full of grace. God is not mad. God's sad. Hear that this morning. And finally, we have a God who has moved. What do we take out of that? I think there's a huge, maybe this is self-justification, you've seen me at the front this, uh, this morning, 
I think there's a huge endorsement of emotion. A huge endorsement of emotion. You know, folks, I think at moments when tears come, whatever reason those tears come up, I think they're often an indicator of the Spirit of God at work in us. Don't fight them. In moments of pain or grief or trouble, I think that's the Spirit saying, this is not the way things are meant to be. It's okay to feel like that. This next quote, please, and here right. The idea that Christians should always have nothing but inner peace and tranquility is at best a half-truth. At worst, a romantic or existential betrayal of the Jesus who wept. Sometimes, folks, it's okay not to be okay. Sometimes your tears and your weeping and grief may be the Spirit of God at work. Not in a way that you choose that. None of us are choosing this stuff. But it may be an indicator of the Spirit just saying, this is not the way things are meant to be. But the tears also come at moments of joy. Yeah, it wells up. Not the Spirit saying, this is life. This is the way it's meant to be. I don't know if uh, any of you are tuned in. It's become um, staple in our house at the minute. Strictly come dancing on a Saturday night. Next slide, Warren. Did you see it? Rose Ailing Ellis. I don't even know how to pronounce her name. <laughs> um, profoundly deaf. And uh, was dancing uh, in Strictly Come Dancing. And the music went silent. And I don't think there was a dry eye in that ballroom. Uh, nor across the country as people watched. It was the subject of a lot of media coverage this week. It was a media moment. It was a moment of beauty. And I think it was the Spirit of God just resonating with people's hearts. I think when tears come, we reflect the image of the invisible God in us. Don't fight the tears. Folks, a number of years of trying to follow God have convinced me that there's no knack to it. There are a lot of obstacles. And they change actually as time goes on. There, no, there, there is no knack. But I found, as I prepared for this this morning, that spending time in the company of Jesus who wept leaves me with less obstacles in my head and in my heart. And I pray the same for you. Bless you.